You're listening to the Ascension Roundtable podcast, your go-to podcast for Catholic ministry shop talk. Episode 8, an interview with Jason Everett. There are a lot of you out there who haven't had the chance to learn about St. Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, or you've heard about it, but you're not really sure how it can help you in your ministry. So we decided to do a show about it, and we invited Jason Everett, a pretty big expert on the topic, to join us. In this interview with Jason, he's going to explain how the TOB is a roadmap that we can use to help people discover their purpose in a society that is very confused. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Alan. I am in studio here at the Ascension Press Studio, and I am joined with Tom and Colin, who are Skyping in from down south. And today we have a very special treat for you. Mr. Jason Everett is going to join us today. He's going to talk about theology of the body, of all things, chastity, and the church's teaching on gender and sexuality. Now, you may have heard Jason talk a time or two. He's only given one or maybe 100,000 talks around the across the globe on chastity and, and teenagers. Maybe you've read one of his books. So you might be wondering what makes today's conversation so special and so unique. And that's because today he's going to be speaking directly to you who work in ministry and how you can use these topics in discussions with people you minister to. So before we get started, I want to remind you that we want to hear from you. Whether you have questions for us, problems you want us to troubleshoot, or just give us some feedback, please leave a comment on the show notes, which you can find at ascensionpresents.com slash podcasts. Or if you just want to shoot us an email, you can do that at ascensionroundtable at ascensionpress.com. So without further ado, a little bit about Jason. I feel like you're on a talk show or something here. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> Jason and his wife, uh, Christine Everett, have spoken about chastity on six continents and to more than a million people. They're authors of more than 10 books, including How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, uh, You, Life, Love, and Theology of the Body. He earned his master's degree in theology and undergraduate degrees in counseling and theology with a minor in philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Him and his wife are founders of the Chastity Project. And Jason, anything else you want to share with us about your multifaceted and uh, impressive resume? I think the newest thing added to the resume was a, a new baby about two weeks ago. So he's the newest addition to the Everett family, little Luke Jacob. Congratulations. Luke. Thank you very much. So that's uh, number seven. Wow. And he's two weeks old, you said? Yeah, t- two and a half weeks old, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, so you're not sleeping much these days, or somebody's not sleeping much. No, very, very sleep-deprived, so. <laughs> but hanging in there. Sleep is overrated, so. <laughs> we should start like a, an IV drip of caffeine into you. I, I could use that right about now. <laughs> All right, so I guess we should thank um, Colin for uh, convincing you to join us today. Uh, and being with us. I know you guys um, have a little bit of a history and go back. You guys want to tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, we've worked together on programs such as Theology Body for Teens Middle School Edition, and I was blessed to speak out at his high school, what was that, maybe two years ago? At the, yeah, the just about two years ago. Yeah, um, just an impressive work that they're doing there, making these teachings of the Theology Body come alive to the young people. I find that young people, they really want to be good. They want to be noble. They want to be heroic. They want to be virtuous. And when you have campuses like his where you've got a theology department really on board with this, uh, it becomes so much easier for the kids to become 
who they're being called to be. And so I've been blessed to be able to work with him in one way or another for quite a few years now. All right. So again, it's the Ascension Roundtable. We are have a special guest today, Jason Everett. And when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Jason and the theology of the body and John Paul II's and uh, his incredible work that discusses human sexuality in light of God's greater plan for humanity. So stay with us. It's hard to live out your Catholic faith on your own. In fact, the Bible reveals that we need a community of people to help us on our journey of faith. If you're interested in finding that community by joining or starting a small group study, visit ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free Ascension account. With your account, you'll get all the tools you need to start walking with others towards Christ. And welcome back. We're here today with Jason Everett. And the team has a few questions for him today about theology of the body and a Catholic approach to human sexuality. And we're going to start with uh, Mr. Tom McCabe. Yeah, great. Thanks, Alan. You know, uh, Jason, many of us who work in church circles, we we think, well, everybody knows about the theology of the body, right? Because it's been around a while, but it just surprises me so often when I'm out speaking, whether it's to an RCIA group or to a conference or something, and the number of people that have actually never heard of this this idea, theology of the body. So can you put it in, in a nutshell, in a kind of a the elevator speech, or maybe a little bit more than that, what is the theology of the body? Uh, it's it's always a challenge to take something that took one of the most brilliant minds of the church five years to unpack um, in a nutshell. Uh, it's, it's essentially 129 audiences that the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, gave at the beginning of his pontificate on what it means to be human and how we're called to live. And there's been a, a misunderstanding that, oh, the theology body, some people say, it's all about sex. People say, oh, no, that's not true. It's not all about sex. Well, it is all about sex if we understand what sex is. Sex is not something you do. Sex is what we are. We're male and female. If you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, and every time the church uses the word sex, it's not talking about an activity of intimacy. It's talking about our identity as being made male and female in the image and likeness of God. And that's stamped into our bodies by the creation of God is our call to love and to make a gift of ourselves in love, thus living out who who, who are made in the image and likeness of, a God who is love. And so uh, through this total gift of ourselves, we find ourselves. And we can do that total gift of ourselves through marriage, through celibacy and a religious life. But we're all called, regardless of our state of life, to find ourselves by the full giving of ourselves. John Paul provides us with this triptych, an adequate anthropology, what it means to be human. And he says, to have this, we need to understand where we came from, meaning created in the image and likeness of God without sin. And then the state we're in right now, where this fallen humanity, tainted by original sin, but redeemed by Christ. And then in the end times, in heaven, glorified man. And so it's so important to have this adequate anthropology, because if we don't understand the reality of original sin, we'll almost think that we're all born without it. In a sense, well, hey, I have this attraction, I have this vice, I have this inclination, I'm born this way. This is who God wants me to be. And we realize, well, there's a lot of things in my life that I have, or traits that I have, that I might have had for as long as I can remember, that might not be God's plan for me, whether it be my selfishness or my pride or, or what have you. And so with this adequate anthropology of, look, original sin is a real thing, but we also have a real redeemer who's calling us beyond uh, our imperfections, who loves us where we're at, 
but loves us enough to bring us past that. And so John Paul II, I think, was very much inspired by the Holy Spirit decades in advance of this identity crisis we're having in humanity right now, of what it means to be male and female, because the Holy Spirit always knows what the church needs when she needs it. And so I think in anticipation for this crisis, in a sense, God has given us this truth in the form of a vaccination, in a sense, that if we can understand what it means to be made male and female, a lot of these other questions about gender, of sexuality, of just sexual ethics are going to be answered if we simply know who we are. Because if you know who you are, then we know how we're called to live. Yeah, I guess my, my follow-up question would, would have to do with, with these particular times. So we live in a, in a microwave culture, a very fast-moving culture. And some may think, well, this was a teaching that happened. It started in the late 70s, went through the 1980s. Um, and here we are in 2017. So they have a question about whether it's still relevant. And uh, I think you've already pretty much answered that, that it's even maybe more relevant in, in a lot of ways for uh, our particular issues. But could you talk about um, the theology of the body in our particular moment in history in the year 2017? And yeah. You know, Pope John Paul II, uh, when he was he was a bishop in uh, in Poland, you know, living under communist persecution, they were really trying to control the minds of the young people with so much propaganda of trying to train them in atheism and hedonism and all kinds of stuff. Meanwhile, John Paul was kind of escaping away uh, into the woods with young young adults and going on camping trips and teaching them personally, you know, the truth of what human love looks like. And he went out with many young couples, engaged couples, married couples. And to this day, all of the couples who went on these camping trips with him, none of them got divorced, 0% divorce rate. And when you learn what it was that he was teaching them, then it becomes obvious why their love was succeeding. And so in this culture where you go to a college campus and more people hook up than even hold hands, you've got a lot of people that are remarkably open to wanting a more substantial understanding of love, that it's not about our sexuality is bad and, and you got to be angelic. No, it's about the, the, the fact that our, our sexual desire, our sexual drive, as John Paul said, is a gift from God, but it can be never be separated from the demands of authentic human love. And so I think his teaching is more relevant now than ever. In fact, Vatican II said, when God is forgotten, the creature itself grows unintelligible. And I think without question, that's what's going on. Uh, we've lost sight of God, and as a result, we've lost sight of who we are. And so, so another question people sometimes have when, especially if they've taken a look at the theology of the body audiences themselves, well, the message that's in there, well, it's it's great, but how do we bring it to, to young people? How do we bring this to a teen audience? And of, of course, uh, um, some of our work together is in part an answer to that question. Um, but how, how would you put that in terms of programming and beyond? How does this teaching make its way into, into the home? How does it make its way into uh, a parish youth ministry program? What does that look like? Um, well, anyone who's read the actual audiences of John Paul II or attempted to read the audiences of Pope John Paul II can get pretty discouraged. I mean, this is, this is heavy, dense philosophical writing, very dense theology. I mean, I've, I've got a master's degree in theology and I'm scratching my head after half of these sentences. Like, what, where's he getting at here? Um, and so what we've done with Ascension Press, about a decade ago, we launched Theology of the Body for Teens, uh, which is a curriculum just cutting edge at a time for taking his Theology of the Body and really melting it down to a high school level without watering it down. 
Now, after that came Theology Body for Teens Middle School Edition, which is perfect if your kids are in 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. Um, but then now a decade has gone by since the first Theology Body for Teens curriculum, and the culture has changed unbelievably, just at a breakneck speed. Uh, a friend of mine said it feels like the devil is just making a run for the finish line, um, just, just trying to make things as chaotic as possible, as quickly as possible. And so we knew it was time to revamp this whole thing. And so we came out with a new program called You, Life, Love, and the Theology of the Body that goes more into how does the TOB relate to gender? Um, how does it help me if I'm struggling with pornography? What about my vocation? What about this? What about dating? How far is too far? Taking all these questions that young people are wrestling with on a daily basis and answering these questions through the lens of the theology of the body. And so if you teach teens in a parish setting, in a school setting, homeschool, or, or just at home in general, Get the program. It's a it's a risk free. I think it's like a forty five day trial. You can have the program for free uh, to check it out if you're a parish or a school. And uh, honestly, it is the greatest program I think I've ever been involved with in about two decades of ministry. Ascension Press has just hit it out of the park. And so it's a it's a great way um, to to take these dense theological teachings and make them come alive in a way that the young people are really going to resonate with. And I'm glad to hear you say that you wrestle with the denseness of the of the t the TOB because I thought it was just me and my my dumminess. But so you hear that a smart guy is actually wrestles with John Paul II's teachings is uh, is is quite liberating for me to hear. Um, and it's, it's it's not just me. When even when he was a bishop, uh, some of the other priests in Poland said that some of his theological writings should be translated first from Polish into Polish so they could understand. <laughs> That's great. If I could, if I could ask an, another follow up, just in terms of, of youth ministry. So, um, so a lot of your work too is on John Paul II himself as as a person, as a, a as a young priest, as as a bishop, as a saint, as a pope. Um, so, a, a question that I would have: How about in terms of the approach of a young Father Carol Wojtyla? Um, what can we gain in terms of how to do youth ministry? How to set up that appropriate um, in, environment? where young people will really be open to the teaching itself. Yeah, in a certain sense, you could say that John Paul II was almost 50 years ahead of the curve in terms of Pope Francis's language of accompaniment. Uh, Pope Francis using that so often, we think, well, that's really a new idea to kind of walk with people. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it, it isn't. I mean, that was Christ's method, and, and Pope Francis is helping it to come alive more now than ever. Um, but this is what John Paul would do. He would walk with these young people in the woods and they said he wouldn't lecture us. He wouldn't give us a speech. He would ask us questions that we would then have to answer to draw us deeper towards the truth. And that's kind of the mark of, of a great educator. He's not just pontificating. You know, he's actually saying, well, well, well what do you desire? Well, well, what's your experience been? And, and so that personalistic approach resonates, especially with young people, because for so long, there's a whole generation of Catholics now in their 30s, 40s, and 50s that are really checked out because I think they got taught, now here are the rules and here's why you got to follow it, kind of arguing from the outside in. But John Paul did it backwards in a sense. He's arguing more so from the inside out. And so for a culture that's as egocentric as ours is, this is a great pedagogical, uh, pedagogical approach to say, okay, well, what's your experience be? What is it that you long for? And have you found it? And so inviting them to look inside instead of feeling like to be a good Catholic, you have to subscribe to these things and then you're good. Well, yeah, obviously we should begin those things, uh, believe those things. But instead of arguing, you know, from the truth of why, what you should believe, 
the goodness of how you should act. And oh, by the way, it's beautiful. This is kind of the other way around. It's this is beautiful and this is good. And look, it's also true. Um, and so it's a different way of teaching the faith, but I found it to be more effective than anything else out there. Hmm. And, you know, I see it a lot in teen uh, curriculums and in high schools, and it's prominent in youth ministry, I guess I could say, but it's not just for teens, correct? Like, it's, this is great for adult catechists to incorporate TOB into adult faith formation and other forms of uh, faith formation of the church, correct? Yeah, without question. I mean, a lot of times the the teachers will be getting more out of the program half the time than the students because a lot of them are tasked with, okay, teach the theology of the body. And they're like, ugh, you know, or, or teach sexual ethics. And they're like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. But as we said, this is dense stuff. It's difficult. And so I really believe the parents, the educators, the DREs, those that are uh, behind this program and helping to facilitate it are going to get just as much out of it as the students are. And I've, I've met adults that are using the old program for 10 years straight saying, oh, I get more out of it every time I watch the thing. Um, and I think this one is so much more rich in terms of its depth. Uh, it's not just three talking heads at a camera. We've we filmed this thing from the top of the Rocky Mountains to New York City to Miami Beach with all kinds of different races and ethnicities and ages and it's 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 one of the greatest gifts I think for young people in the church today, and I'm I'm just honored to be a, uh, even a part of it. Great, thanks, Jason. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, Jason's going to give his explanation of the very underrated virtue of chastity. So stay with us. We'll be right back. There might be an upcoming Ascension event happening near you, and we'd love for you to attend. Almost every week, our inspiring Catholic speakers travel to parishes, schools, and organizations around the country to ignite hearts with the love of Christ. Discover and register for upcoming Ascension events at ascensionpress.com events. All right, and we're back. All right, for the next segment, I'm going to toss it over to uh, my my colleague, Tom McCabe, who has uh, who is the co-author of our uh, living a joy-filled marriage program and and our uh, life skills program, and he's going to ask Jason a few questions of his own. Great, thanks. Yeah, Jason, uh, you know my wife and I, we've prepared, golly, almost thirty-five hundred couples for marriage now, and there's a common misunderstanding where people will equate chastity with abstinence. Right? Mm-hmm. They use those terms interchangeably sometimes, and so when you're talking about chastity, we have to explain to them. Uh, what chastity is, and I. Uh, so what I find is, you know, uh, people don't realize that that yeah, uh, certainly I'm chaste in marriage, but sometimes that means I need to practice abstinence. I need to be abstain. Other times in marriage, yeah, I'm practicing chastity, but um, but I don't necessarily need to have to practice abstinence. Uh, so if I we're going to ask you what what then is what 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 is chastity? Yeah. Well, easy way to understand chastity is it's a synonym with purity. It's to use the gift of our sexuality according to God's plan for that. Well, what's God's plan for sex, for the, the sexual act? It's the wedding vows made flesh, that when a husband and a wife promise uh, to love each other and be faithful to each other, they make these promises on their wedding day. Our love will be free, total, faithful, and open to life or ordered towards procreation. And then they go off for the honeymoon. And then they speak those wedding vows through their body. I give myself to you freely. I'm not coercing you. I'm not manipulating you. I'm not pressuring you. It's a free gift of self. It's a total gift. I hold back nothing from you, not even my fatherhood. It is a faithful gift to you, not just with my body, but my heart, my imagination, my eyes. 
And it's a fruitful gift. It's never sterilized or contracepted. It's ordered towards procreation. And so when you use the gift of sex according to God's plan, you're renewing your wedding vows in the flesh. Now, sometimes, as you had mentioned, though, abstinence is a part of marriage. And I think this is so important for young people to understand before they get married that abstinence is an expression of love. You have a boyfriend who wants to sleep with his girlfriend, but he thinks about it. He's like, am I really doing what's best for her? Risking her getting pregnant, her parents finding out, you know, the sin involved. Like, is this really love? Well, well no, it's not. So I'm going to abstain tonight with her. And that abstinence is a greater expression of love for them than making love because they're doing what's best for their beloved, not just what feels good in the moment. Now, so imagine you have a young man who learns that abstinence is an expression of love. And then you have another young man who doesn't get this. And he thinks, well, when I have these urges, well, my partner should be there to satisfy them. Both of these men enter into marriage with a woman. Don't you think their spouses would know the difference between a man who has self-mastery and can make a gift of himself and another spouse who becomes petulant or whiny or manipulative or angry or distant if the wife is not constantly sexually available to him. The wife is going to know the difference. In fact, Pope John Paul II spoke about Eve enjoying all the peace of the interior gaze, meaning that when Adam originally looked upon her without original sin in his heart, she had peace within hers. Because he, she knew he wasn't looking at her as some good to be appropriated, some thing to be used, and there was peace in her heart. And, and women get this. They know when in the heart of a guy is this, this attitude of utilitarianism, that I want to use you, you know, for my enjoyment. But if you have a husband who gets married and realize, hey, look, abstinence can be an expression of love for my wife. If I'm traveling away from the family, my abstinence is expressing love to my wife. If I get home and she's exhausted from being with the kids, hey, my abstinence tonight can be an expression of love for her. In fact, I know a man whose wife who had been sexually abused when she was younger and those wounds started to come back up within marriage, the memories, and she needed some abstinence for a month and two months and three months and six months of abstinence in marriage, at which time the husband was really wrestling with God, you know, like, hey, God. You know, I didn't really sign up for this. <laughs> Jesus is like, well, actually you did, you know, good time, bad, sickness and health. But through his sacrifice, not only did he heal her through his sacrificial love, God healed the man as well from some broken ideas he had about masculinity, about needing to have women being sexually responsive to you. But by being on the cross, he was more masculine and intimate and loving than in any physical act he could ever demand from his wife. And so you see how this virtue, if you get it before marriage, is going to make you a better lover within marriage. Yeah, yeah. you answered even my, my, my next question, which was a, you were very apropos, because what does chastity look like in marriage? You know, and Jay, Jason, what we get a lot of times, people think um, chastity in marriage means, okay, once I get married, then I guess then I need to be chaste. Or, or I won't have this chastity issue or this porn issue or this flirting issue or this loneliness issue or whatever issue once I get married because then uh, marriage is going to fix it. Or they, they either say, you know, I can't wait uh, until I'm getting married. Th then, you know, then I won't have to worry about this chastity thing because then I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. But what you're proposing to us is you use those terms, the free, total, faithful, open to life, uh, which are really the canonical promises, right? But you're saying 
what we say on the altar, then we're actually expressing and renewing in every aspect. Is that what yeah. you're getting at? Yeah. yeah, the sacrament of marriage is not a car wash. It does not bleach away all your imperfections. If anything, the spotlight on your imperfections more than anything. And your faults will come to the surface in marriage, kind of like oil and water. And when that happens, the sacrament is doing what it's supposed to do, sanctify the spouses. Well, how do you get sanctified if your faults are buried? You know, when I got married first, I thought, hey, I'm a, I'm a pretty patient guy. I'm a pretty selfless person. I'm quite forgiving. And then, then those virtues get tested big time in marriage. And then your weaknesses come up to the surface. And this is especially true if there's a vice of unchastity. I knew of a, a high school religion teacher at an all-girls high school in the Midwest. She invited a bunch of boys who had recently graduated and headed off to college and were back in town on spring break to come to her all-girls high school to talk to the girls about how they kept their faith as Catholics in college. During the classroom discussion, it came up that one of the guys looks at pornography, and he doesn't see this as a problem. And the teacher said in front of the 30 girls to the young man, well, don't you think that this could be a problem within your marriage? The guy was perplexed. And he said, why would that be a problem in marriage? He said, isn't that what a wife is for? (laughs) Party foul. Yes. Not the best thing to say in front of 30 teenage girls who subsequently tore him to pieces. Uh, (laughs) He realized that, okay, well, maybe marriage is not the fulfillment of porn. You know, maybe porn is the distortion of human love. And when you expect your wife to live up to that, it's going to cause great suffering to her and even to you. And so chastity is something that, it, you know, and, and none of us have perfected this by any means. It's not like, hey, I signed the commitment card. I'm good to go. It, this is a daily battle. This is if you're a normal red blooded man, this is an hourly battle throughout the day. Uh, it's something that we are actively engaged in, not some journey, some destination we've arrived to. Um, but if we're on the journey, if we're fighting for this, then then that's going to help our marriage. And if it's something that we thought marriage is just going to solve, I'm going to put on that ring and I'll get fidelity, I'll get self-control, I'll get this stuff. You're in la-la land. That's why, unfortunately, marriage prep today isn't really marriage preparation. It's triage. I mean, this is a last-ditch effort to save what you can before they get married in a few weeks. That's why the church says marriage preparation doesn't start with engagement. There's proximate, um, immediate, and remote marriage preparation, meaning you should be doing marriage prep when you're eight years old by watching how your dad dates your mom. That's marriage preparation. And we've got a generation of pre- people approaching the altar that think it starts when they're sending out their invitations. Yeah, <laughs> so true. So true. Uh, one last question then for you. What then does it really mean, Jason, uh, to for a married couple to say, hey, yeah, yeah, we've got a good sex life. You know, I mean, is are, are they tie? Is it just is it more sex? Is it more better postures? More part? I mean, not to be blunt, but you, you know what I'm getting at. Or does it speak to a to a deeper reality? Because it seems that sure there's a subjective experience of 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 sex, right? Of of that conjugal embrace, where, where yeah, there there may be a certain high or certain low. But I would think it would be true to say also that I may not have the high, but it may be even more intimate because on an objective level, I know that we are giving ourselves to one another mm-hmm. in in a true self giving way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think the spouses can make a gift of themselves in very different ways because maybe one's love language is quantity and the other love language is quality. You know, like, hey, I don't, I don't need it as often, but I just like 
you know, when we come together, that it just be more meaningful and, you know, more slow paced or whatever. And the other person's thinking something else, but they can, I think you will make love as you love. And if you're a selfless lover in the kitchen, in the garage and, and, and all the different ways of life, that's going to translate into the bedroom. But if I'm self-absorbed in one room of the house, it's not going to change when I walk into the next room. And so it's a matter of taking that virtue of self-giving love. And John Paul II took some heat on this when he wrote his book, Love and Responsibility, back in the 60s in Poland, where he's talking about the man really needs to take into account that the woman simply has a different arousal curve, and it tends to be more gradual, and men can be very animalistic and selfish and focusing on their own pleasure in the act while almost completely disregarding hers. And, and he goes into great detail on this that raised quite a few eyebrows. But some of the women who read this said, well, my goodness, this guy must have been married at some point. Surely he must have been engaged. How could he understand this so well? He understood it well because he was a great listener. I had heard not long ago of a woman who had, uh, I believe she was an atheist or agnostic. And I think she had a friend or a family member who knew John Paul II. And this woman apparently had left the faith because of her great suffering she endured, I believe, during the Nazi Holocaust. And uh, after, and she had a brief, I don't know, half hour with John Paul II. And when she left the room, uh, being alone with him, uh, her, her, she was all aglow. And her friend said, well, what, what did the John Paul say to you? What did John Paul say to you? And she said, he was the most remarkable man that I have ever met in my life. And the person said, why? And she said, he listened to me. And, and that was a gift he had to the church. At World Youth Days, he said, what I have to say to you is not important. What's important is what you have to say to me. He was there to listen, not just to preach. And so as a result of listening for so many years of thousands of confessions, he was able to take that insight and give it to the church in his writings. If I didn't know any better, I'd think you were a big fan of John Paul II's, Jace. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm over the moon today because I just got wind that his uh, his his diary notes has finally been translated into English and it's coming out in a couple of weeks through HarperCollins. So oh, wow. I, I've been emailing back and forth the publisher in Poland trying to get permission to translate them. And then I found out it's just about finished. So, so uh, it's very excited. It's called uh, I am in God's hands or in God's hands. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. All right, we're going to take it on the break, unless you have one more question for him, Tom, or is that? That'll do it. That'll do it. All right, then we come back. The bearded one is going to hit him with the hard stuff, uh, gender identity <laughs> and homosexuality. So let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Father Mike Schmitz, and if you're looking for a way to learn more about your Catholic faith, I invite you to check out the Ascension Presents YouTube channel. You're going to find tons of free videos featuring Catholic presenters like Matt Frad, Leah Darrow, Jackie Bobby Angel, and Emily Wilson. Go to youtube.com slash Ascension Presents. That's youtube.com slash Ascension Presents. And if you like what you see, please share and subscribe. All right, and we're back. All right, so for the, for the final segment of the show, Colin McIver, I'm going to let you take it away and uh, knock Jason out with, uh, with the good stuff. What we're all waiting for. Uh, okay, so I, I think... Almost always when we're presenting a catechesis on human sexuality on and presenting that adequate anthropology, the uh, the brick wall we so often hit, the, the John 666 moment is when we start to talk about gender identity and same-sex attraction in a culture that, as Pope Francis puts it, has been ideologically colonized. That so many of our young people, and not just our young people, but so many um, in the adult world as well, 
um, have really been uh, almost brainwashed into a, a totally um, foreign way of thinking about the relationship between body and soul and gender. So how do we break through? How do we have a productive conversation when when it comes to something like same-sex marriage? Um, what's the what's the quote unquote secret? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the secret, if there is one, is Pope Francis's language of accompaniment. The church isn't looking for a quick fix of here's the silver bullet, you know, one minute argument that's going to sell you on why gay marriage isn't marriage. Oh, now I'm on board. No, we've got to walk with these individuals. So they realize they're loved. They're loved by me. They're loved by God. They're loved by the church. And if they don't feel that, then they don't care how great your arguments are about natural law. If, you, if I'm not loved by you, loved by God, loved by the church, I, have, I don't care about your theology and your philosophy. And so the first uh, you know, item on our list has to be making sure these people feel heard, feel loved, feel understood. And in the context of that friendship, we can begin just helping them understand the deepest question of who are you? Like, what is your identity? Um, when everything is all stripped away, the good and the bad, who are you? Because we attach ourselves to things that we really aren't. Like, I'm attached to chastity speaker, author. That's who I am. I'm the chastity guy. Okay, well, what if that profession was stripped from me? What if all my books were no longer in publication? Who am I again? Okay, well, well, I'm, da I'm dad. Okay, well, God forbid, what if I lost all my children? I lost my wife. Okay, who am I? What if Donald Trump became homeless? Would he even know who he is? You know, what, what if these people, Mike, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, couldn't shoot a basketball anymore? What if all these things that we kind of try to attach to our identity were, were stripped away from us? I think with how this applies to same-sex attractions is people are saying, well, I have that attraction. I am gay. I am lesbian. That's who I am. Well, we're not our identity. Our identity isn't defined by our sexual attractions. And not to make light of labels, but you know, if I were attracted to a woman who's not my wife, is that who I am? Like, am I an adulterosexual? If I'm attracted to some pornographic billboard, does that make me a pornosexual? You can see how these labels are less than who we are. I mean, you'll notice when you introduced me at the beginning of this interview, you didn't say our, you know, our interviewee today is Jason and he's straight. Well, <laughs> what does that have to, I mean, if I'm straight, are you crooked? I mean, aren't the labels too narrow for the human person? And so we've got to realize that your identity, when it's all stripped away, the good and the bad, your identity is your beloved son or daughter of God the Most High. And so our job as a church is to help these people not to deny their identity, but to embrace the deepest truth of their identity. The whole lie of the gender agenda is that we are going to give these people permission to finally accept who they truly are. But the whole agenda behind the gender is to give them permission to reject who they are, who God created them to be, male and female. And it's difficult when you feel this um, dissociation between the body that you have and the gender that you identify or you experience. No doubt, this would be a very, very difficult experience for anybody to go through. Um, but the, the church is church is trying to help us to understand that God created you, that he loved you as his child. And by mutilating your body and calling yourself something else, you're not getting closer to the deepest truth of who you are. And, and the word gender is just getting thrown around with people not even realizing, well, where did this even come from? Well, we've got to understand that this idea that I can basically switch my gender 
no, I, you know, I, I'm biologically, I was assigned this sex at birth, but now I identify as this. A very close parallel could be what happened with that woman from the NAACP with the Rachel Donazel, where it came out that she was Caucasian, but she said, but I identify as African-American. When I was a little girl, I would always draw myself in my pictures, not with the pink crayon, but with the brown crayon. And so I identify as African-American. Well, let's say you made up a word for that, you know, whether it's transracial or even let's say, well, you know, my my race is one thing, but my my schmender, I can call it, is what race I identify as. And so my schmender is African-American. So you have to respect that. This is what's going on with gender. This word gender is kind of getting pulled out of the blue and saying, well, now this is who you truly are, even though your body has is, is something else. This disassociation of the body and the soul. I think is what John Paul is trying to heal in the theology of the body, that these things should go together. They're not meant to be separated. So good. So true. So going forward, um, we're armed with the truth and also an approach that's, that's genuinely pastoral that, uh, this, this way of accompaniment, um, the, the way of, uh, St. John Paul, the second short of Isco of, really, really walking with people and really listening. Um, what does that look like when it translates into, into a parish or into, into a, a you study? So say there are listeners out there and they've, uh, they've got their workbooks. They're about to, uh, embark on this 10 session journey with, a uh, with 30 teens. And they're in that group of 30 teens. There are going to be a few who are, are gender confused. They're going to be a few who are wrestling with their attractions. Um, the, the culture is, is making a, a hard push for them to, to identify in a particular way. How can, how can that study leader following the lead of St. John Paul II uh, genuinely accompany them? What, what does that look like? Well, I think we've got to be a part of their lives. For example, I was in uh, World Youth Day during the, um, the evening papal vigil. Pope Francis was in Poland this last summer, and a girl showed me on her cell phone her college application to Stanford University. And she said, look, I have to pick my gender on the application to Stanford. And there were 18 genders to pick from. Male and female were not even on the list. And, and this is why I think it was uh, I think it was Cardinal Burke who said the twofold expression of the human person is not homosexuality and heterosexuality, but male and female. And we've got to understand approaching this issue, gender is different than sexual attraction. When we conflate the two, people on the other side get really irritated. Well, no, gender is not the same as this. And it's, it's, it's hard to follow along because I will meet girls who identify as boys that are dating someone who is biologically a boy, but they'll say, well, but technically I'm not gay because, and, and, I'm, and I'm just trying to follow along here. I was like, okay, wait a minute, you're this. I've had girls introduce me to another girl saying he's a great guy. And he, and he's, and, and, but he, and he's my girlfriend. Okay. Wait, you know, in my brain is almost like one of those slow video games that's trying to process the speed, <laughs> you know, and you know, not obviously not to make light of it, but like, these are some serious deep interior struggles and there's no quick fix, quick, easy answer. Well, what do you do when my friend wants to be called a, a she or a Z or wants to be identified as trans masculine or gender nonconforming? Well, these are deep issues. And so in the Theology Body program, you, we actually have individuals that have struggled with these things on camera. 
that, you know, one gentleman shared his testimony for the first time on video and, and shares how gender inclination, gender identity issue was something he struggled with. Same sex attraction is still something he struggles with and how he found joy in the Catholic church. And these voices are now going to start popping up around the world of people who have bought in to this uh, agenda. Well, it's either gay pride or gay shame. Those are your only two choices. Which one is it going to be? Because a lot of kids feel stuck between those. Well, I don't want to deny myself, but I don't want to throw away God. And the church steps in and says, look, those aren't your only two choices, gay pride or gay shame. You can actually acknowledge that you experience these attractions, but realize your identity isn't your attractions. I think this is hard for them to understand because the world is hypersexualizing everything. Their potato chips, their cheeseburger, it's all sexual. Their friendships are turning sexual. You guys are hanging out a lot. You having a bromance over there? No, it's a, it's a masculine friendship. Well, I don't know. I've never heard of one of those before. Friendships are getting hypersexualized. Relationships, obviously. And this is key to me that we really have to get across as educators. Attractions are being over-sexualized. I'm having girls come to me saying, I'm really confused because I think I'm straight, but my friends say I'm lesbian, so I'm thinking I might be bisexual. And I'll say, what's going on? And they'll say, well, there's this girl I really like being around. And the guys at my school are really disgusting and perverted and gross. But I love being around this girl. And she is really pretty. And she's so much fun. And I come alive when I'm around her. So I think I might be bisexual. And I'll say to these girls, I don't know if anyone said this to you before, but you're supposed to be attracted to members of the same sex. And she'll say, what? And I'll say, well, look, your friend, her beauty, her charm, her wit, her intelligence, her personality, doesn't that all draw you to her? And she said, well, yeah, it does. I said, well, it should because God made all things good. I said, there's a man in my Bible study. He's like 85 years old, gigantic beard. He's like the dos equis, most interesting man in the world. And I'm very attracted to this older man. It's not a sexual attraction, but his warmth, his charisma, his joy, his personality. He's like a magnet. I want to be in his presence because not every attraction is a sexual attraction. And these girls' eyes will light up and they'll say, oh, that makes so much sense. I've never heard about it like that before. And so helping to diffuse this a little bit of like, hey, you're going to experience attractions, but that doesn't mean that you're going to fulfill yourself by acting out in a genital manner with this other person. Now, some people do experience deep-seated sexual attractions to members of the same sex, and they're called to find joy in chastity, and this is possible. You can watch the videos like The Third Way or Desire of the Everlasting Hills. Show these videos that are on YouTube or Vimeo to your kids, because until they see the testimonies of people who experience these attractions and have found joy in chastity, they won't even believe that chastity is an option. They'll just think it's a death sentence of a life of loneliness, isolation, and misery when John Paul promised it's the sure way to happiness. Man, such good stuff, Jason. How can somebody get a hold of you if they want to see uh, more of you or read some of your books or any of your um, – have you come speak to their school or, or church? How can – where should they find you on the web? Just go to the website chastityproject.com. So you just go to chastityproject.com and you can find out all about our ministry there. Um, and then you could also get the curriculum you there or the theology body for the junior high kids as well. All the programs are there, all the books and DVDs, everything is at chastityproject.com. Excellent. So thank you for joining us. As always, 
We'd love to hear from you. So tune in on iTunes, search for Ascension Roundtable. You can also find us at ascensionpresents.com. Um, on iTunes, you can rate us and review us. Please do that so we know how we're doing. If you want to check out the show notes, we have links to resources and things we've talked about and have our show notes at www.ascensionpresents.com slash podcasts. And if you just want to shoot us a quick email, you can do that at Ascension Roundtable at Ascension Press. Dot com. Fellas, always a pleasure. Mutually so. Yes, always fun. Always fun. All right. We will see you next time. 